chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to start reading there in the very first verse. And this morning we'll go down through verse number 12. Acts 15, verse number 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. When they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you, Lord, and I pray for your help this morning. I pray that you would guide and direct I pray that you control what I say, Lord, and how I say it. Lord, I pray for your help. Lord, help me to stay true to your word. I pray that your word would feed your people. Lord, use it to strengthen us and to help us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, just as we see here those who are deceived, Lord, and believe in a false gospel. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has never genuinely been converted. Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing. I pray the message of the gospel would be clear, that even this morning they repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, may you be glorified and honored. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There's some key questions in life that, that men need to be able to ponder if they're going to come to a place of truth. The devil does a great job at keeping us from really thinking and meditating. Um, whether it's through, I mean, all the forms of entertainment today, just anything to keep our minds going from one thing to another so that there isn't those times in life of just silence, if you will, of pausing, where God, the Creator, can begin to work on the heart and, and to begin to put wonder into your heart with such important questions as, 
How did I get here? Why am I here? I remember the Lord putting those questions on my heart as a little boy, laying down before I was ever saved, before I ever come close to hearing the gospel, laying down in the grass, looking up at the stars at night, wondering those exact questions. Little did I know at that time that that certainly was the Creator Himself nudging my heart, using just the glories of creation to get me to wonder what's actually there. So these are questions that that people need to ponder. If they're going to come to truth, to to wonder, how did I get here? Why am I here? Is there purpose? But it's all to lead to the most important of questions, and that is, what is going to happen to me? And as you learn the truth of those issues, you come upon a realization. I can almost thought about doing a series on each of those questions, leading up to the question that we're dealing with today, and that is, what must I do to be saved? Because as you come through the truth of those, you do realize you are here because a creator puts you here. You're not here by a random act of the cosmos. That is nonsense, illogical, and ridiculous. You are here with a purpose from the creator. And then you begin to realize, as you genuinely search truth, that you have sinned against this creator. There's a separation between you and him. As you go on that quest to figure out what is true and God directs you through the preaching of his word or his word itself, you begin to realize, I am condemned. I mean, if I die right now, I will be judged of a holy and righteous creator. I would be guilty. Which leads you to the next most important question of all. What must I do to be saved? In the chapter we're dealing with, that is the question that is dealt with, that is discussed, that is debated, and that is answered and settled. In this chapter is a record of the first internal dissension that took place within the church. The churches had already been struggling with battles from without, persecution from without. I mean, heavy persecution. Uh, um, martyrdom taking place, uh, um, having to be separated, being in prison. But it wasn't stopping the growth. Satan comes up with a new tactic. Now he's going to cause a battle from within. And he's going to go after the most key central doctrine, that of the gospel itself, and he's going after it. He wants division. He wants it disrupted. He wants to destroy the progress that is taking place. He's well aware of what is just taking place, the conclusion of the very first missionary journey, and all that God just did. When we come into chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their first missionary journey. We've been going through that. All that the Lord did... Uh, um, when they went into Cyprus, and then really the preaching after that point began when they got to um, Antioch of Pisidia, into Iconium, into Lystra, into Derbe. Paul has come back, and he's been reporting back to the churches. Now remember, this is important. It's going to tie into the, to today's message. And I dealt with this as we went through the chapters dealing with the first missionary journey. Paul primarily focused on an area called Galatia. Which is where we get the book of Galatians, which is going to tie much into today's message. We learn much what happens in Acts 15. We, get more, we learn more about it from Galatians, the book of Galatians itself, especially Galatians chapter 2. 
When Paul is there discussing all that God did on his first missionary journey, there's an important person who's present, and that is Peter. He's there. We learn that from the book of Galatians. He's present. During this time, the Bible talks about certain men, Judaizers. They come down from the church at Jerusalem. They hear what is taking place. At, by this time, everyone knows. I mean, within, within all the different churches that are, are, that are now coming out, the church at Jerusalem with all the persecution that had taken place there, the primary church that God is working through right now is the church at Antioch. We, we developed that greatly as we went through the book of Acts. What God was doing at that church. So these Judaizers come down and they begin to declare openly, listen, these Gentiles are not saved. They have to be circumcised and we have to command them to keep the law of Moses. Paul realizes how deadly this debate is. He knows this is a false gospel. This is coming right out of the church at Jerusalem right now. If this conflict doesn't get settled, it could destroy the work that is being accomplished. Two different churches could end up forming the wrong conclusions with basically in-world missions, destroy the Great Commission. It could end the hope the world has. The world, going on all around Jerusalem in this area, the entire world, has no idea how important this meeting is this day in Jerusalem. This chapter is why solid churches like Baptist churches exist. This, this is an example of earnestly contending for the faith. This meeting will settle the issue of law or grace, religion and relationship. Although it is settled in this chapter, and it will be clear, it is settled scripturally, it is settled with clarity, the devil continues to use this debate and this issue to confuse, to blind. And we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit today as well. So today I'm going to break the first 12 chapters down to, down to three points here we're going to look at. Primarily focusing on the third point this morning. We'll look at the argument that is there, the assembly, and then the answer. So let's get into this. First, the argument, verses 1 and 2. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So again, Paul and Barnabas, they have returned back to their sending church there at Antioch. They're reporting all that God did during this time. These Judaizers, these certain men come down of the sect of the Pharisees into the church at Antioch. Again, this is the key church. This is where Gentiles are, have come to know Christ. It's amazing what the Lord did there. I mean, we looked at, when we looked at how what God was doing at Antioch, the, the, the key men he put in this church, Incredible. So they come down, all the, these converted Jews uh, are realizing, wow, this is exploding into the Gentile world. They're seeing what's taking place. And for many of them, it's scaring them. Now, 
we know from different portions in the book of Acts already, we've had converted priests. We have, we, we have had those converted into Christianity at this point. Those were strong in Judaism, not just the casual person. See, at this time, this is, the book of Acts is such a book of transition. We can look back at it and say, how could they possibly think this? But this was a time of transition. This was, you have to understand, these, these converted priests, if you will, let's say they're among this group, which I think is likely. I mean, all their life they've given themselves over to this religious system of Judaism, a pseudo-Judaism which had formed. Given themselves over to ritual, over to sacrifice. Believing, how, uh, uh, thinking that was how, uh, of, of, of uh, what should I word, placing such great importance and value on it. And now all of a sudden, they're hearing the conversion of these pagan Gentiles. That through nothing other than belief are made equal to them and they don't get it. They see Christianity, don't, don't forget this. They still see Christianity as a part of Judaism. And so their argument is basically this. No, no, they cannot be saved. The door to Christianity, they believe, is through Judaism. That you must convert to a Jew in order to be truly become a Christian. Obviously, if you were Jewish, you had to be circumcised. If you were a true proselyte, you had to be circumcised. And they're saying, no, no, they have to be circumcised. They have to keep the law of Moses. And there was a genuine confusion that came about. Do you understand the book of Romans is not written yet? It's not penned in. It's not there. By this time, probably the only book, and it might not have been penned in yet, would have been the epistle of James. Again, they believe in order to be a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. Circumcision was a major part, obviously, of Jewish life. An absolute. So they see these, these pagans and their idolatry and their wickedness. And just by faith, they're getting saved and now equal to their standing? They didn't understand it. They didn't get it. So these certain men, they come to Antioch, which is the epicenter for reaching Gentiles. Peter's there. Peter's present. There's also another key man who is present. That's Titus, who, although we don't read about in Acts chapter 15, he becomes a major part of this debate. Titus, of course, who is a Gentile, Paul refused to circumcise him. Now, at times, it's interesting to keep this in mind. You go to Acts chapter 16, you're going to see where Paul encourages a circumcision to take place. But there's a major difference between the two. Major. Huge, even. With Titus, it, Titus is before what those who are in the church with believers, if you will. Some are false brethren, as we're going to see. But in the other example, no, that is before the lost. That is before the loss. Paul is not about to concede to their false gospel right now and allow that to take place. But we learn much here what's taking place. Peter will become part of this controversy. 
the reason why we have the book of Galatians is directly tied to this text. It really is incredible how the Bible ties together. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Paul is referring back to what took place in Acts chapter 15. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them were to a reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unaware brought in who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But counterwise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. For he that, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And with James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them of the circumcision. The other Jews uh, dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. By the way, you can see, we can see a separation that's going to be up and coming between Paul and Barnabas very soon. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even as we have believed, in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. For I am, cru- I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says this, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if the righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He's expounding on the argument 
what was taking place in Jerusalem, the conclusions that were reached, and how salvation works. He brought up an issue that had taken place, and he put a lot of the blame on Peter. It's almost as if Paul believes this issue could have been settled in Antioch. So Peter is there, and everything is great. He's fellowshipping with the Gentiles just as he should be. Then those certain men arrive. Know what Peter does? Withdraws himself. Pulls back. Paul was not a happy camper. Because of Peter's influence, it affected others. It affected key men that were close with Paul. Paul is not a happy camper. And in front of all, he rebukes Peter to his face. He lets him know, Peter, you're going to be blamed for this mess right now. You should have never have pulled back. You know how we're saved. You know it's by faith. You know it's not by the works of the law. And so the argument is given. Are we saved by faith and grace alone? Or is part of the law needed? So the discussion goes on. The argument occurs. Paul knows the severity of this. He knows what this can destroy if the wrong conclusion is reached. And so... The decision is made. This is too important. We get with all the apostles. We need it settled. And so, key men from the church at Antioch, those Judaizers, Peter, they all head to the church at Jerusalem. Which brings me to my second point, the assembly. Now, by the way, because of the book of Galatians, think about this for a second. Just because this is going to be settled, as we're going to see, the Judaizers did not stop. The fact that Paul, that we have the book of Galatians, speaks that this is very likely to have occurred. That those same men who went to Antioch that were teaching the false gospel, do you know what they did after they heard where Paul went? They went to Iconium. They went to Antioch of Pisidia. They went to Derbe. They went to Lystra. They went into Galatia. And they spread the false doctrine. So the assembly occurs back in Acts chapter 15. Let's look at... Let's look down through verse 6 here. Uh, uh, verse 2 again. Paul and Barnabas, certain other than that they should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through uh, Phoenicia and Samaria, de, uh, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done unto him. So you can see what's taking place. They're up there, and it starts off with Paul declaring, all right, this is what's happening with the Gentiles. All right? Um, and then you have the counter-argument coming up, that then there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believes, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, it's a, a whole, like, another meeting takes place now. The apostles and elders sort of separate themselves, and they came together for to consider of this matter. So this is the assembly that takes place now. Those men head up to the church at Jerusalem. The arguments are presented. They know how serious this is. They know the importance of this debate. Uh, uh, um, they, they heard what Paul said. Uh, uh, um, his words were all that God was doing at the time. They hear the Judaizers speaking up. 
And, and uh, again, Paul and Barnabas, they're received. It's, it's, they're listening to the arguments. And then the apostles and those elders, they get together and they say, listen, we're going to consider this. We're going to think on this. So it's met. Now let's get into point number three, the answer. <clears throat> Verse number seven. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up, said unto them, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that, by the, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the, of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So the answer is now given in this chapter. It's interesting because it's given by three different men. Peter's going to speak first, then you're going to have Paul, and then you're going to have James. Peter is going to deal with the past, as you see. He is dealing with what took place about ten years earlier. Paul is going to deal with the future. And then James is going to deal with what, uh, or Paul dealt with the present, excuse me, what's happening right now. And then James is going to deal with what takes place in the future in regards to this matter. Again, this is not James uh, of, of, uh, of the apostles. This is James, the half-brother of the Lord. He became, remember that, we went through James several years ago. This James became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He's pastoring the church. That's why he's in a leadership position here. That's why you see him speaking there. That's why he wrote the book of James, because his congregation was scattered because of persecution. And that was written before the rise of the conversion of the Gentiles, because they're not even mentioned in the, in the epistle. And so you have the past being dealt with, the present being dealt with, and then the future being dealt with. And we're going to look primarily at Peter's response right here. As he goes through what God did and how all this got started. And then we'll look briefly, in closing, at Paul's response. And Paul showing how God is in this. <clears throat> so we have Peter's response. By the way, this is the very last mention of Peter in the book of Acts. And it certainly is an important one. Peter refers to a time a good while ago. He is referring to Acts chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius, which is about, depending on who you read, 10 to 15 years prior to this. So when you're putting this together, keep in mind now the age of Peter. Uh, and we read this, we read through a few chapters in the book of Acts in, 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 in a day or two. We fail to realize years are going by. Years are going by. I don't know exactly how old Peter is, but I believe he's in his 50s to his 60s by this point. So he says, listen, a good while ago, again, 10 to 15 years prior to this, was the conversion of Cornelius. Peter reminds them, he says, listen, and listen, by the way, I believe Paul right now is thrilled. Paul knows the one who needs to speak is Peter. He needs to address this. And Peter speaks up. I have no doubt, I, I, there's not, because of who Peter is and, and what we learn of him and know about his life, I have not a doubt in my mind that when Paul rebuked him to his face, he was under such conviction. I mean, he knew, man, I am wrong. Paul's right. Because of me being a coward right now, it's causing division. And he's ending it.
Peter reminds them how a good while ago that God was the one who chose Peter to go and preach unto the Gentiles, to open the door to him, if you will. Go back to Matthew chapter 16 with the keys that were given to Peter. He's the one who preached at Pentecost when the Samaritans were starting to convert before they had the Spirit of God. It was Peter who God had sent in there. And now you have it here with Cornelius. When you finally have them going to the Gentiles, and remember all that God had to do to get Peter to go. Remember, that was an amazing chapter we looked at there in Acts chapter 10. Here you have Cornelius, this God-fearing man, which I don't know if I'll get into that. That plays somewhat of a role. He certainly was not circumcised, we know that. But you can see some of the arguments of the Judaizers. is You're still dealing with a man who, who had left the paganism of his day, at least, and had ascribed to monotheism one true God. And so God, respond, God always responds when people respond to truth. And we looked at that, how, how God had given him a vision, sent him to send for Peter. He will tell you what you need. And then there's Peter. Peter gets put in a trance. So he's not like he's asleep, but he's in this vision, if you will. And all of a sudden, it's clean and unclean meats mixed together. Remember how important that is. Coming down, the three times that come down, and, and the voice saying uh, to rise and eat. And Peter, first being Peter, I will not. <laughs> And God reminds him, what I have called clean, don't you call common. Don't you call unclean. And then we went into the Old Testament, if you remember, and we looked at why God gave those dietary laws. You've got to know why, because God's undoing it right there. He absolutely is. Some of the laws, yes, were given for health reasons, but that was not the primary reason given in the Old Testament. It was to demonstrate a separation between Jew and Gentile. And God says, that's over with. You're going to be one in Christ. Remember, when he woke from it, he was still a little bit confused, trying to understand, what is the Lord telling me? But, of course, all of a sudden there's men at the door. Hey, uh, we're sent from a man named Cornelius. We want you to come with us. He doesn't hesitate, and he goes. He goes. He heads there, and, and remember... He begins, they're sitting there waiting, and Peter is still a little bit awed, a little bit, still trying to put things together. Remember how he grew up. He's still trying to understand, I am here in a Gentile house, all right, I'm going to preach. Remember why he yet spake, the Bible said. They got converted. Spirit, they, they got indwelt by the Spirit of God. And, and Peter, uh, what's the word used there? I can't remember the word. It was in all. Let me, let me go. It's just a couple pages. Pages over. Let me find it here. Why Peter yet spake these words? The Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision, Peter and those with him, which believed, were astonished. And as many that came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they're like, oh, it's true. God just saved him. You know what Peter knew? God never said, circumcise him first. God never said, now command him to follow the law of Moses. Peter is remembering. They were astonished. It's true. This gospel's for all. It makes us one. <clears throat> so Peter reminds them of the conversion ten years earlier of Cornelius. And he lays it out in certain proofs in Acts chapter 15. As he goes through the account of the conversion of Cornelius, the first time that they went to a Gentile, one of the apostles. And he was genuinely, without a doubt, converted. 
saved. No circumcision, no commanding of the law. It was done. Peter knew it. And he said, you want to know how I knew it? They received, the first proof he gave was this, they received the Spirit, Romans 8, 9. If you're truly saved, you have God's Spirit. He says, I was there. That, but remember, that was one of the reasons for the true biblical gift of tongues. It wasn't some mystical, ridiculous language. It was the ability to speak a, a foreign language without ever learning it. And it was, it was a sign to the Jews. It was a sign to them. Truth is come. And when Peter saw that, he knew, just like Isaiah said, it's here. They're saved. That was it. They simply placed their faith in Christ and salvation has come. And they were astonished. So he lets him know, no, I was there. They received God's Spirit. Proof number two he gives them. He talks about how they were purified there in Acts 15. He says, let me get there myself. He says in verse 8, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as they did unto us. He said, listen, they got it. Genuine conversion. And put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. Their sin was dealt with just like mine was, Peter says. Just like yours was. Faith. That was it. Faith. Sin of both Jew and Gentiles dealt with the same way. God puts no difference, and so they better not. No circumcision, no ritual, no work of the law, but by faith in the finished work of Christ. Third proof, and it's his strongest statement that he gives. That's verse 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? I think right there, the, lo- the, the, the loudest amen you heard was Paul. I don't know if he ever said amen in church or not, but I think he did that day right there when he, when he heard Peter say that. Because this is what Paul has been shouting And he knows it has to come from Peter. And Peter says it. He makes it clear. He's not ambiguous about it. He's not not trying, and there's a lot to learn here. He's not trying to, he's not even trying to compromise to, 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 you know, uh, um, to the Judaizers to still make them feel important. No, no, he's not, no, you're simply wrong. The third proof he gives is saying basically this. We know this as Jews. The law cannot save. We're asking them to do something that we ourselves could not do. We are asking them to do something that now as we look back, we never actually understood. What we thought was a means of salvation was simply a means to show us we are condemned. That we could never live up to it. It was a yoke, a burden we could not bear. And now we're putting it on them? How foolish. Why tempt ye God? What he means by that is, he's telling them, you are making God mad. Christ, as as Paul will go on to say in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, Christ made us free from the yoke of the law. The law cannot save. It cannot take away sin. It's completely impossible. 
So Paul is going down to a fundamental truth about how justification works. And that the law cannot save. And then he makes the statement. He settles it. Verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. He settled it. It's not circumcision. It's not the law. It is faith and grace. That's what saves. That's it. He makes it clear. He settles it. There is no, there is no need for circumcision. There was no command about it. There, there, God never gave it. Uh, the Gentiles were saved just like they were because of God's grace. When they placed faith in Christ, they received God's spirit. They were cleansed from their sin. And, and, and listen, this argument still rages right now. The devil's great at semantics. See, this sermon can be one of the most important that you ever hear in your life because the devil is great. I was Catholic. I grew up Catholic. You know what? If you ask me as a, as a Catholic, you can talk to a Catholic today. Do you believe that salvation is by grace through faith? You know what they're going to say? Oh, of course. It is. It's by grace through faith. And then you hear other Christians which just ignorant and, and just sad because if I am the one who was lost like I was, I want somebody to tell me, no, that's not right. Listen to me. But we just hear it at face value and say, oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. What you have to understand when you're Catholic is how they get around it with semantics is like this. Well, there's vehicles for you receiving that grace. There's things that have to take place in order for you to receive. God has certain things such as transubstantiation. This is how you're going to get the grace. I want you to think about this for a second. If there's, which there is none, if there's any truth in that at all, any truth in it at all, do you know where it would have been brought up in the Word of God? Acts chapter 15. Is communion mentioned? It is not. And yet you have people believing it and believing it and believing it. Oh, it's the means of grace. No, you are attaching a work to it and using semantics to try and cover up the Bible truth of the matter that is by faith and grace alone. It's not through some cannibalistic act. Again, we have the book in the back there, I, I think is amazing, the, the story of a conversion of a Catholic priest. I think you ought to read that. But it's not just that. This argument, right? there's so many false versions of the gospel. People attaching different things to it. People attaching from whether it's baptism or, 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 or works or church membership. You name it. They're always attaching something to it. It's not your baptism. It's not good works. It is by faith and grace. You see, here's why. And it really does make perfect sense. Think of the argument Peter is making. It cannot be any other way. There's no possibility... Any of those things can play any part in it. What they knew was this, is what the law showed them was, I can never fulfill this. I'm condemned. Now, as a Jew, you know what else they also knew, which isn't brought up here. You're going to see it brought up more in the book of Hebrews. But what they had to do still to cover their sin through the sacrifices. They knew how short they fell. They knew, if I stand before a holy and righteous God, 
I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And that God's requirement, you understand, if, if, if you've offended at one point in the wall, you've broken all of it. Do you understand that? That truth should frighten you. You see, what we do is we compare ourselves among ourselves. We don't compare ourselves next to the law of God and see how short we actually are. You're going to die one day, be judged of Almighty God. You will stand before Him in judgment. And guess what? You are 100% guilty. In order for you to escape judgment, don't miss this. It has to look as if you have never broken his law. Never. Because if you just offended in one point, are you guilty of all of it? You are. You have to look perfect. Circumcision is not going to cover that. You already know that you can't keep the law. They know that's a Peter. We couldn't keep the law. I mean, we had to do that. I mean, we were all we were sinning against God. How is this part of their salvation? We got saved by faith, and they got saved by faith. So then, what does the faith do? What is it? What is it about grace and faith? It's the only way salvation could ever be possible. It's the only way for you somehow to look perfect. You see, this is what God did in order to save you. This is what Peter understood. Now, for us now, looking back 2,000 years ago, that man that Peter walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, he fulfilled the law. That that man, that God who became flesh, that God who became a man, that walked on this earth as a man, fulfilled the law. In other words, he lived the perfect life. The only one on all of human history, the only one who could actually stand before the judgment day, before his father, and the father could say, him as a man, you're innocent. I find no fault. He's it. There's no one else in all of human history who could stand before, who actually did fulfill the law, who lived the perfect life. But you know why he did that? He lived that perfect life for you. You see, when he went to the cross, when we say the words, Christ died for you, we fail to understand what that means today. But he literally did. You see, 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches us what happened that day. For God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What that verse is saying is this, that when Christ went to the cross, God the Father placed upon him your sin. Your sin was on him. And the Father judged him in your place. You know what that satisfied? Justice. That had to be met. It satisfied justice. But at the same time he takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness. His perfect life. You see, if that takes place, if Christ takes all of your guilt... All of your sin upon himself. And then he gives you his perfect life. And you stand before God. Know what it looks like? You're perfect. You're perfect. And God knew the only way to make this possible then. The law was our schoolmaster to show us that we needed Christ. It wasn't the road of salvation. 
Everything pointed to Christ. Everything. From, from the tabernacle to the temple to the sacrifices. Everything pointed to what happened on Calvary. And if God was going to do this, and his love was directing it, we know that from verses like John 3.16, it would take grace, which is unmerited favor. You know what the Jews were trying to do? Trying to create some way that they could say they deserved it. That they could, as Paul's going to say later on in the book of Galatians, that they could glory in their flesh. Grace. That God, through his love, enabling grace, that when a person repents and comes to Christ, through faith, he saves them. Look at the thief on the cross. There he is, dying. The other thief speaking up, saying, if thou be the Christ, get us down. And then he speaks up. He had a change of mind, by the way, while he was on the cross. It really is impressive. He's cutting it a little close. But it does hit. And he tells that other thief, you need to shut up. You know what I know, he said? We deserve to be here. This man does not. This is all he did. By faith, he went to the one who could save him. Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. At that moment, could you imagine hearing the words of the Lord as he turned and said, Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amazing. He placed his faith in the only one that could help him. That's it. Think of all the groups today that frustrate the grace of God. No Catholicism does. It frustrates the grace of God. Know what it does? The Campbellites and all their uh, trying to attach baptism to it, or the United Pentecostals trying to attach everything in the world to it. It frustrates the grace of God. Salvation is in Christ alone. You can't add anything to it, or there is no conversion. None. It is coming to Christ by faith. And then in conclusion, before we go into the invitation, I'm I'm not even going to dive into it too much here, but I I will mention it is important. Verse 12, Paul and Barnabas speak next. What's amazing is when Peter finishes, by the way, nobody's saying a word. It's silent. The weight of of what he just said is hitting. I mean, they're in Jerusalem. Don't forget that. They're in Jerusalem. The weight is hitting. There's no need for the law. It's done. We're trying to rebuild the veil. What are we doing? It's done. The weight is hitting. And then Paul he stands up to speak. He wants to be an encouragement to him. Now he goes, wait, wait. Let's not miss how great what God is doing right now. And he tells them of the miracles that God did. What happened in Cyprus with the governor? With his conversion? What happened in Antioch of Pisidia? The Gentiles coming to know Christ, seeing all that God did. It's hitting. You know what they're realizing is? 
the amazing grace of God. So Paul goes into the present. Next week, we'll get into James. The pastor of the church is going to speak next. With heads bowed and eyes closed.